Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jay Tapper today. And this afternoon, Dr. Anthony Fauci is calling testing delays in this nation, quote, unacceptable period and warning the pandemic will keep smoldering without a more unified response. Yet a source telling CNN that President Trump is still struggling to grasp the severity of the pandemic. This source said, quote, he does not get it. Globally, about one person is dying from coronavirus every 15 seconds. That's according to CNN's calculations. And as CNN's Athena Jones reports, the U.S. just marked one of the deadliest days of the summer. I mean, the numbers don't lie. America's top infectious disease expert with a stark diagnosis six months into the pandemic. When you look at the number of infections and the number of deaths, it really is, is, is quite, uh, quite concerning. But Dr. Anthony Fauci has some good news, especially for those who don't want to go back into quarantine. We can do much better without locking down. And I think the, that, that strange binary uh, uh, approach that either you lock down or you let it all fly. There's some place in the middle when we can open the economy. That assessment coming as the state by state picture is mixed at best. New coronavirus infections steady or falling in most states, but daily death counts still rising in 22 states, hitting 1,399 nationwide on Tuesday, the second highest one day death toll reported this summer. The virus is winning and the American people are losing. And we need to focus on what's happening. Hawaii reporting its highest seven-day average for new daily cases at 119, up some 146% from the previous week. Florida seeing its seven-day average for new infections drop by nearly a quarter, even as it becomes the second state to pass the half a million case mark. With infections raging across much of the country, New York City, where a fifth of all the new COVID-19 cases have been traced to other states, announcing quarantine checkpoints starting today for vehicles coming from states on the tri-state area's quarantine list, with fines of up to $10,000. This is serious stuff, and it's time for everyone to realize it. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, a confident prediction from the president. Vaccines and uh, therapeutics are coming along incredibly well. We're going to have one, I believe, long before the end of the year. But while experts within his administration believe that swift timeline may be wishful thinking. Somewhere towards the end of the year, the beginning of 2021, we will know whether we have a safe and effective vaccine. There is promising news on the vaccine front. The United States now has six vaccines that we've placed major investments in. Uh, Four of them have already reported out positive phase one clinical trial results, and two of them are already in the advanced final phase three studies. The Health and Human Services Department reaching a $1 billion deal with Johnson & Johnson to buy at least 100 million doses of its investigational COVID-19 vaccine. And pharmaceutical company Moderna setting a price tag of under $40 a dose for its vaccine, which still must complete phase three clinical trials. 
And one more thing about schools that could give officials and families and really everybody pause. A new study finds that COVID-19 rates are significantly higher in minority children. Out of 1,000 patients tested at Children's National Hospital in Washington, just over 7% of white children tested positive compared to 30% of black children and just over 46% of Hispanic children. Pamela? Mm, That is very troubling. Thank you so much, Athena Jones. And joining me now to further discuss all of this is Dr. Vivek Murthy, a former U.S. Surgeon General in the Obama administration. Great to see you. I want to get straight to what Dr. Fauci said today that that I thought was really interesting. He basically said, look, the fact that 40 percent of those who have the virus don't show symptoms hampers the messaging around this virus with, with thin hampers containing the virus. Here's what he told CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. As long as you have any member of society, any demographic group who's not seriously trying to get to the end game of suppressing this, it will continue to smolder and smolder and smolder. So given the reality, is there any hope, Dr. Mortha, that the smoldering could end? Uh, Any hope for a unified response here? Well, Pam, it's good to be with you today. I do think there's hope uh, for a unified response, and I do think there's hope we can get this under control. But it will take what you alluded to, which is all of us acting together and recognizing that the question is not just how do we protect ourselves from severe infection, but it's how do we also prevent ourselves from transmitting the virus to other people. We know that many people get infected and have no symptoms. We also know that younger people, particularly children, uh, can get the virus but they are less likely to have symptoms. That doesn't mean they don't transmit it to other people. In Mm -hmm. fact, the more data we have tells us that asymptomatic transmission is happening and it's dangerous. Look, we have addressed outbreaks and pandemics before in this country. We've come together in the face of adversity, particularly around health, but it requires us recognizing this is an all-in moment Mm -hmm. for America. We're not gonna get there if everybody doesn't step up and do their part to reduce transmission. And yet there's not really an all-in message across the board on on the federal level, it seems like, um, you know, when it comes to masks and these other mitigation efforts. And we heard Dr. Fauci say today uh, that the U.S. can do much better in fighting the pandemic without completely shutting down. He said, look, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be, you know, all or nothing. Do you agree that a lockdown, a complete lockdown isn't necessary? Well, I think it depends where you are in the country. But where I do agree with Dr. Fauci is that this isn't a black and white situation. It's not a, a, fl- a switch that you flip on and off. Instead, I would think of these measures that we've been talking about, like a dial that you turn up and then you turn down gradually. And what we need to do now is there are in some parts of the country where there is rampant spread of the virus, where a lockdown may in fact be what is needed. In other parts, we may be able to suppress the virus if we are aggressive about mask mandates about closing indoor dining and bars, about restricting crowd sizes Mm -hmm. and encouraging people to observe hand hygiene measures. And in other parts of the country where we actually have low levels of viral viral transmission, we may be able to resume Mm -hmm. uh, a more normal phase of life. So it depends on where you are uh, in the country, but make no mistake, we have to err on the side of caution here because what we saw in the spring was that we didn't shut down enough and we didn't do it for long enough. The result is we saw a resurgence in infection 
And we can't let that happen a second time around. But how concerning is it to you? You know, I don't know if you listened to, to Dr. Fauci and Sanjay today, but Dr. Fauci was talking about how his family has received threats and how science is being politicized, how uh, people are just discarding the science, the data, the numbers to back up what's actually going on here. How concerning is that in, in terms of trying to end this pandemic? Well, it's deeply concerning because what is going to get us through this pandemic is science, it's scientists, and it's people listening and taking their cues uh, from science and scientists. Uh, what isn't going to get us through this pandemic is polarization, is politicizing public health messages. And I think the fact that we have not seen, unfortunately, a unified uh, approach to communicating about this virus, the fact that masks, for example, have become a political symbol uh, to many, mm -hmm. I really hurt us. And what I learned during my time serving as Surgeon General, where we dealt with Zika and Ebola, is that you can have the best scientists, you can have the best science, but leadership also matters here. And mm -hmm. you've got to have your leaders from across parties, across government, in the private sector, speaking with one voice, mm -hmm. putting science and scientists first, and leading by example when it comes yeah. to following safety measures like wearing masks. Well, I mean, you talk about wearing masks. There, were, there was a study that came out that said if 95%, I believe, of Americans uh, wore masks, that uh, that could save tens of thousands of lives over a few months. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. And you also talked about, look, in the past, the United States has been able to overcome pandemics, but this is this is a novel virus, right? We, we have never seen anything like this, even though it's in the family of coronavirus. One of the tricky parts about this virus is that, you know, the fact that you have people who, who get it that are, are, you know, that don't have any symptoms, then you have seemingly healthy Americans that die from this. How can the U.S. get to the bottom of that? Is that something that is eventually knowable? Well, there's, you're absolutely right that we are learning each day about this virus, and there's still a lot we don't know. But the good news is that we've learned a lot in the last several months. And what that has taught us is that, number one, while this is a new virus, that we do, in fact, know how to prevent its spread. And it's through the hand hygiene, the mask wearing, the avoidance of crowds. We also know that indoor spaces are a setup uh, for transmitting the virus. And so mm -hmm. avoiding indoor spaces is especially important. And what we know is that we are going to need science and an investment in science to be able to develop a vaccine and therapeutics to ultimately help in the long run mm -hmm. uh, to keep this virus at acceptable levels. You know, the good news is, uh, Pam, that we've got great candidates uh, in the pipeline uh, as mm -hmm. far as vaccines are concerned. I'm optimistic we will have one, but we have to be very, very careful that we do not cut any corners uh, in the you know, creation and approval of these vaccines. We've got to make sure the Americans people have a vaccine that's safe, that's effective and available for them to use. And that's key, um, but it's it's not so clear cut in terms of, uh, you know, even if a, a, a vaccine becomes available, it's getting everyone on board to, you know, to, to use the vaccine, it's figuring out how to distribute it. And here's what Dr. Fauci said about de developing a vaccine for all coronaviruses. Take a listen. Instead of putting coronaviruses on the back burner, why don't we try, I say, well, I'm asking a question, I'm telling you, we're definitely going to do it, is to develop a universal coronavirus vaccine that has the specificity against all the coronaviruses so we don't have to anticipate the next time this happens. 
actually, I thought that was really interesting because, you know, there's all this talk about how you have to have a certain uh, vaccine if you're, you're an older person versus a younger person. But he's basically saying they could develop one, potentially one vaccine that could treat all coronaviruses. How soon do you think that could happen? How realistic is that? Well, I think that's an aspiration certainly worth pursuing. And there have been discussions in with other viruses as well, with the influenza virus of trying to, for example, develop a universal uh, flu vaccine. Uh, we should be pursuing those long-term goals while we are working on the shorter term of getting a vaccine candidate, mm -hmm. uh, you know, developed and available to the American people, you know, in the, in the in, over the next year. Mm -hmm. um, but this is the point: is that when it comes to approaching these viruses, we've got to work in the short, medium, and long term. I mean, so we've got to invest in the science, but it also means that if we're not paying attention to how we communicate with the public about the science, we are going to run into a situation where many people may not have faith in the vaccine when it comes out. What I was concerned about was a statistic that I saw recently from a poll showing that nearly 50% of people are saying that they are either uh, decided they won't or uncertain mm -hmm. they would take the vaccine if it was available today for COVID-19. That's deeply concerning, but I think it speaks to what we need to do to not only ensure the process is transparent and that it's safe, but we also have to invest now in communicating with people consistently mm -hmm. about what the science says so people have sources that they can trust. Right, and, and, and that is increasingly difficult given how social media can be used as a weapon for disinformation campaigns. So we're gonna be tracking that all very closely. Dr. Vivek Morthy, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Pam, take care. You too. Well, the COVID impact on the conventions, Joe Biden just announced that he won't be attending the Democratic convention in person as President Trump makes a controversial proposal for the Republican convention. Also ahead, one moment, a bride is posing pictures as you see. The next, she is blown away by a massive explosion tearing through the city. We are live with the very latest on this mysterious blast. Turning to our politics lead now, Joe Biden is not traveling to Milwaukee to accept the Democratic nomination for president. The DNC says nearly its entire convention will be online now, all because of coronavirus. And today, President Trump said he's considering giving his Republican National Convention speech from the White House instead of North Carolina. CNN White House correspondent Caitlin Collins joins me live. So, Caitlin, we just heard from the president and he once again cast doubt on mail-in voting. Yeah, this time he's in the Oval Office with the governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, and the president was once again railing against mail-in voting, going from saying he didn't know anything about Arizona's own mail-in voting system to then moments later saying that he was going to endorse it. And he said he believes if there is going to be this widespread mail-in voting come November, that it would be a catastrophe. And I'm quoting him now, Pam. He said, you'll never know who the winner is, but the winner is going to be me. Three months out from the election, President Trump is stepping up his attacks on mail-in voting amid concern from Republicans that he's discouraging his own party from casting their ballots. It's going to be months or years. They will never be able to tabulate their votes because they're not set up for it. Election officials in many states are now encouraging voting by mail because of the pandemic, while Trump is baselessly claiming that the virus will subside in 90 days. But by November 3rd, that's, you know, time-wise, that's eternity, frankly, as far as I'm concerned. 
Trump's campaign and the Republican Party sued the state of Nevada today in an effort to block a new law that would send mail-in ballots to every registered voter. So Nevada, we're in court. We'll see how it works out. In that lawsuit, Trump and the GOP claim that the new law, which is sponsored by Democrats, would inevitably result in voter fraud. The state's Democratic governor says otherwise. Everybody is limited to voting one time. It's totally safe. There is at least one state where the president thinks it's okay to vote by mail, Florida, which is widely seen as critical to his reelection and is the same state where he now votes by mail. You can't do a mail-in vote. Now, Florida is different in the sense that they've been doing it, and they've had two very good governors, frankly. After initially planning to do so in Florida, the president now says he may accept the Republican nomination from the White House. And we're thinking about doing it from the White House because there's no movement. It's easy. The suggestion that he would give a major political speech from the White House has prompted even the number two Senate Republican to ask, is that even legal? John Thune adding, I think anything you do on federal property would seem to be problematic. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she agrees. The state and local governments are suffering from the virus and the rest, and we're talking about whether he can have a political event at the White House. He can't. Meanwhile, Democrats are dialing back their own convention plans after Joe Biden announced today that he'll accept his party's nomination remotely from Delaware instead of Milwaukee. And the president today was also talking about debating Joe Biden, Pam. And we have now learned that the Trump campaign via Rudy Giuliani has sent a letter to the Commission on Presidential Debates asking for a fourth debate with Joe Biden. Right now, there are three scheduled, but they say they want one earlier in September because they want to do it before voters start casting their ballots. And they even suggested a list of potential moderators, though it's not clear where this request is going to go. All right, we'll be tracking that. Thanks so much, Caitlin Collins. Well, a single mother with two young children explains how each day that passes without Congress reaching a stimulus deal could be disastrous for her. Turning to our money league now, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows says he's doubtful they'll be able to reach a deal with Democrats on a new economic stimulus bill if negotiations aren't done within the next two days. A message echoed by a top Republican senator just moments ago. But right now, amidst all of this, millions of families who depend on unemployment are already trying to get by with less money. That extra $600 per week coming from the federal government did not get extended. And now people like my next guest, a single mother of two in Las Vegas are struggling to pay rent and other bills. Joining me now is Melissa Davis. And Melissa, you have been directly impacted by this. You are one of the millions of Americans um, who is feeling the ripple effect of what's playing out right now and not receiving that extra $600 a week. Um, first off, let's talk about your current situation, Melissa. Hi, um, so I've been back to work since Nevada reopened the restaurants. Um, we're only at 50% capacity and the bars aren't open right now. So me being a bartender, I've been basically doing tables, to-go orders and those types of things. I work in the morning um, and it's just hit or miss. Some weeks you get one shift, some weeks you get five. Uh, all the hours are cut, a lot of the staffing's cut. And they have a lot more people on because we have to take all these precautions to clean extra and sanitize everything after every guest gets up. So it's been right. pretty tough. And so how much do you make a week now going back on the, these limited hours? 
Um, so I make the minimum wage in Nevada is nine right now, and my tips vary. There's days I walk away with a hundred. There's days I walk away with forty. Um, I've been lucky a few times and made over two hundred, but it just typically depends on how nice people are being that day. <laughs> so, so on a good week, you were making over two hundred on tips. You're saying yes. Okay, and so you had been receiving that six hundred dollars a week from the federal government. How critical was that money for you? Um, it helped a lot. I had just moved into a new place. Um, I am a single mother of two. Um, I didn't have much saved because we just got a new place, put the deposits and all that down. And I didn't get my unemployment for at least five weeks after I applied. Hmm. So I pretty much was scrambling by while I could. <laughs> and when you say scrambling by, what does that look like? And how has that extra money, the $600, helped? how did that help you get by during the difficult time? So on unemployment, I only make four fifty one a week. Um, that's before taxes, and with the extra six hundred, that put me over a thousand fifty with before taxes as well. Um, I needed that to pay my rent with just the four fifty alone. I can't get by paying. That's not even enough to pay my rent for the month. Hmm. Um, plus all the utilities and everything else that comes with raising two children. <laughs> Okay, so you're still you're still on unemployment then, um, from what I gather, correct? Partial. Um, so I apply every week to keep my claim open. There's weeks I go over that 450 and I get nothing. Mm -hmm. There's weeks that I go under it and they give me you know 100, maybe 200 dollars, whatever the difference is. So it kind of just depends on the week. Um, the last two weeks I didn't receive any unemployment because they did put me a little bit over the 450. So it's basically week to week for you trying to, to, to juggle this and you have two children. Um, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I can't imagine just how difficult it is going through each day sort of not knowing what's to come. And you know, it, it's interesting, one of the sticking points on Capitol Hill is, is the extra $600 boost that you were getting that has ended. Republicans argue it could prevent people from going back to work because it's more than what they make normally. What's your response to that? Um, I do agree with that partially. I, I personally have seen people who are making more money on unemployment than they were before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. People who make minimum wage, work at McDonald's, places to that nature, um, they were making more on unemployment with the extra 600. So I can see how people have lost the motivation to go back to work. Um, you're at risk going back to work to catching the COVID. Um, but I also think that people need to go back to work for their sanity. Mm -hmm. um, in my perfect world, everything would go back to normal. Everyone could go back to work. And, you know, I, I my personally, I went crazy at home with two children right. for three months. I was going crazy. They were going crazy. So I like to go to work and it's great. But at this point, um, with homeschooling and my dad on hospice, it's oh, just gosh. a risk for me to go to work. I don't yeah. want to expose that to my yeah, no, understandably. And I, I'm so sorry to hear your dad's on hospice. Um, so, I mean, just, just you are going through what so many Americans across the country are going through. And you point out something really important that, you know, homeschooling. You've got a daughter going into second grade. Uh, her school is doing online learning, we understand. How are you yeah. going to balance all of this? You know, balance your job and, and your father and, and stepping up to do homeschooling. How, how are you going to do all this? I'm not quite sure. Um, luckily, my mom helps me with babysitting, but she's not technology savvy. So 
it's not like she can exactly homeschool my daughter. Um, I work in the morning, so I don't know how the school's going to do it yet. They haven't announced it till Monday. Uh, I don't know if, you know, she has to be on the computer from a set time and I have to be sitting there watching her. So I'm mm -hmm. kind of concerned for that. Um, I'm kind of concerned to find a new job. Um, I might have to switch to a night job, but no one's hiring with the COVID going on. So, right. yeah, there's a lot of unanswered questions that I have, and hopefully they're answered Monday when they release what the plan is. Yes, we're all, we're all waiting to find out what that might look like. All right, Melissa Davis, thank you for coming on and sharing your story with us. Of course. Thank you. Well, a first day of school nightmare, a young student testing positive for coronavirus as several major school districts scramble to change their plans. Our Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins me with a reality check up next. Breaking news, more than 100 students are now quarantined after several tested positive for coronavirus in Mississippi. The school district started in-person classes just last Monday. And in Georgia, one second grader tested positive after the first day of school on Monday. I want to bring in CNN's Diane Gallagher. She is live for us in Atlanta. So, Diane, how is the elementary school dealing with this positive test case? Uh, so, Pamela, essentially what has happened so far at uh, this elementary school in Cherokee County, Georgia, is all of the students who were in that second graders class and the teacher have to quarantine at home for 14 days. Uh, and, and that's it right now. They're doing a deep cleaning of the classroom, but it's just those 20 second graders and the teacher uh, who at this time according to the district isn't showing any signs of sickness so they're going to continue teaching virtually from home uh, the student we're told by the district wasn't experiencing or showing any sort of symptoms on that first day of school on monday and then began feeling sick when they got home their parents took them to the doctor they got tested and that's when they tested positive i want to point out though that and you might be seeing some pictures from sixes elementary school uh that first day most of the kids were wearing masks but here's the thing it's not required the district will encourage students to wear masks but won't mandate it because it's not mandated here in the state of Georgia by the governor. Uh, they also say they'll encourage social distancing. You can see in those pictures that seems to be a little bit harder for the students to do, uh, but that's kind of what they're operating at right now. Now, parents are choosing to send their students back to school, so the kids who are in school, that was their parents' choice. They can also go virtually, but this is what they're working with right now, Pamela. Uh, just those students who were in the same class as hmm. that child are the ones who are quarantined. The rest are still in school. Wow. And then there's this another school district in Georgia where more than 250 employees have tested positive or been exposed to COVID. Uh, they have a, a tiered plan to get students back to in-person learning. How is that going to work? Yeah, so that's Gwinnett County Public Schools. That's the biggest school district in the state of Georgia. And they actually start back virtually next week. But then uh, two weeks later on August 26th, they want to bring back the youngest of each level of school. So we're talking kindergartners and first graders, sixth graders and ninth graders. And then a week later, the idea is to bring back uh, some of the older students. And then one week later, they hope to have all the students who choose to return to class of all grades back in school. But here's the thing, Pamela, they continue to say that this is a best case scenario plan and mm -hmm. things definitely aren't 
best case here in Georgia right now. Deaths remain high, cases remain high, and hospitalization rates remain high as well, with ICU capacity upwards of 85%. Mm. So we're not in a best case scenario right now in the state of Georgia, but that school district isn't the only one looking at this tiered, phased in plan, trying to find a way to get kids in school so their parents can either work or deal with childcare issues. But as we saw in Cherokee County, there are significant risks associated yeah. with that option. It's it's a tough situation all around. Diane Gallagher, thank yeah. you so much for bringing that to us. And we're going to dig deeper onto this situation that parents are facing, school districts, with uh, one and only Dr. Sanjay Gupta to discuss this. And, and this is something, you know, we're parents, so we're biased. You know, obviously, we're really interested in this. But you look at this case in Georgia, uh, Sanjay, that second grader who tested positive is now home quarantining for 14 days. The classmates and the teacher had to quarantine at that particular school, that class, but the whole school didn't close. What do you think about that? What do you think the procedure should be here if someone tests positive in a school? Should everyone be sent home or just the classroom? Well, you know, there is no national or, or even state policy on this sort of thing. So uh, these are handled on a case-by-case -case basis, which, Pamela, as you might imagine, may start to become very, there may start to be a lot of these types of cases. Uh, local right, because it's just beginning. Be I mean, schools are just it's starting just to open, and now we're already seeing this play out. And you add into that that people are often most contagious uh, before they develop any symptoms if they do. So what the local health officials have to do then is they have to essentially figure out who was in close contact with somebody. Were they within a certain distance? How long were they within that distance? What sort of contact did they have? It's laborious work. And you're mm -hmm. gonna have to do this in each school district each time this occurs. Uh, so the answer in this particular situation may be based on the fact that there was lots of contact the second grader, other students, and the teacher, they decided to put the people in quarantine and the infected child into isolation. Uh, it, it may be a different situation in a different school. Some schools are doing what is called cohorting, Pamela, where basically you have the same few people that you are essentially with in a bubble, or a, a sort of bubble, throughout the day in, in a school district. So if mm -hmm. one of those people subsequently tests positive, then it'll be the smaller cohort as opposed to the larger class or the larger school. But again, you know, it strikes me because I've been having so many conversations with school administrators that everyone is sort of coming up with their own plan. Uh, even in my own kids' school, the plans are changing hmm. even today in anticipation for a couple of weeks from now. Yes. So do you think then there should be a, nat a national policy, um, a one size fits all template for schools to reopen safely? Or do you think this, um, as you as you just pointed out, you know, schools kind of doing it their own way is a, is a good way to go about this? No, I, I think it's confusing for people. It's confusing for the administrators. I mean, as we talked about yesterday, everyone is sort of becoming forced to become these ap amateur epidemiologists, right? Just try and piece mm -hmm. this together. And school districts and, and school uh, superintendents have a tough job right now. And parents are obviously concerned. I think when it comes to the basics, those things can be uniformly applied. And you know, you know what the basics are at this point, but uh, you know, uh, maintaining some sort of physical distance, face masks within schools, uh, having proper ventilation, uh, even opening windows, things like that, limiting communal spaces. We have a, there's a whole list of things which are the basic things that should be applied across all school districts. But a big thing that is not on here, and you know, the CDC is not universally recommending, but some, some school districts are starting to, is, is testing. 
testing students mm -hmm. before they come on campus and having some some plan for regular testing every several days or a couple of weeks whatever it might be most school districts don't have it don't have the yep. capacity for it don't have the money for it and that's a problem yeah, I was actually going to ask you that, that because you were talking to Dr. Fauci today and he said, look, testing across the country, I believe his words were unacceptable, right? He said the current situation is unacceptable. You look at that, that school in Georgia, they were, it, it seems as though the results came back quickly for this student, but that's not what we're seeing across the board. I mean, some people are having to wait, you know, several days, even weeks to get results back. So how does that play into all of this with schools reopening? Unless you get the test results back quickly, it really, from a public health standpoint, loses its value. The, the, the reason you're testing from a public health standpoint is to quickly identify people who are carrying the virus and being able to isolate them to slow down the spread. Uh, if it's taken too long, people can go out there and still be spreading. As you know, I mean, many people might not have any symptoms, so they wouldn't even know that they were spreading. So it's, it's, it's almost useless if it's taking too long, over a few days. There's also on top of that, Pam, I mean, almost a larger problem, which is we still don't have enough tests. We're trying to test in a surge capacity sort mm -hmm. of way in hot spots. Uh, the idea of what we talked about yesterday, assurance testing. Pamela, if I were to see you, visit you and your, your family, your two beautiful children, would, I, would you have some assurance that I didn't have the virus? Could I have assurance that your family didn't have the virus? We don't, we're not anywhere close to assurance testing at all at this point. So it sounds like a fantasy almost. But to be able to get to that point is, it could be very helpful with trying to open schools. Lots of kids indoors possibly close contact, tough situation otherwise. Do you feel like there's, we have any sort of answer as to why we don't have that yet six months in uh, to this pandemic? Mm. There's still, that still doesn't exist on a, a wide scale. Why? Yeah, I, I, you know, I asked Dr. Fauci this today as well, Pamela, and it's been a constant source of frustration. Uh, as you mentioned, he, he said it's unacceptable, period. That was his, his quote. I, I, don't, I don't know, Pamela. I mean, this is going to be an interesting retrospective at some mm -hmm. point. No point throughout this entire thing since February, since late, late January, have we been uh, on the ball with regard to testing. We've been behind from the very beginning, and we're still definitively not caught up right now. We needed major breakthroughs in testing uh, back, you know, several months ago. We're not there. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, some have suggested that we have tried to minimize this problem by not testing enough. You've certainly heard that. Whatever the motivation, it, we're paying for it now yeah. with things like schools and, and starting to try and reopen things. And it's interesting, you know, when the president talks about the virus, he often brings up treatment and how the vaccine, um, you know, is being developed in rapid speed. We don't hear a lot from him, though, on testing, making the testing kits uh, more available, widely available, the, the quick response kits and so forth. He doesn't talk about that as much as the treatments and vaccines. And something else he said mm -hmm. uh, that was interesting to me, uh, Sanjay, he said it this morning, was school age children are essentially immune from coronavirus. Let's take a listen. If you look at children, children are almost, and I would almost say definitely, but almost immune from this disease. So few, it's, they've got stronger, hard to believe, I don't know how you feel about it, but they have much stronger immune systems than we do somehow for this. And they do it, they, they don't have a problem. They just don't have a problem. Does the data back that up? The data does not back that up. I mean, I, I think that he doesn't know what the word immune means, frankly. I mean, you know, kids can become infected with this virus. They can carry this virus in their bodies. 
they, it is true they are less likely to get sick. But keep in mind, what we're talking about here is a pandemic, an outbreak of infectious disease. So in addition to, to thinking about people getting sick and obviously taking care of them, you're trying to slow down the spread of this disease. What we know now from a big study that came out of South Korea, kids 10 and older, they're not immune, first of all, they can carry the virus and they spread it just like adults. Kids younger than 10, we still don't have enough data to really know, but they carry a lot of virus in their body, so they're not immune. Also, if I can just say, with regard to testing, because you brought that up, the president has said that he wished there would be less testing. If mm -hmm. he's weighed in on that topic at all, that's generally been his, yeah. his, uh, his comment about it. Yeah, he, he's, he, he talks about how there should be less testing and how um, because there is so much testing in the United States that the U.S. is a leader in the amount of tests, um, that that's why there are so many cases. But tests don't send people to the hospitals. Tests don't kill people. Um, and if anything, the tests are just revealing how widespread uh, the virus right. is in the United States. All right. All right, thanks so much, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. We appreciate it. I got a Pamela. Thank you. Well, the best way to see college football in the fall is for all of us to wear a mask. That is the message from the governor of Mississippi, who just mandated masks in public places for two weeks. As CNN's Martin Savage reports, the governor is reversing course now that the state is experiencing one of the worst surges in the nation. In deep red Mississippi, times have changed. I am implementing a statewide mask mandate today. Just over two weeks ago, Republican Governor Tate Reeves told Jake Tapper he was opposed to a statewide mask mandate. If I believed that was the best way to save lives in my state, I would have done it a long time ago. What changed? Mississippi's on the brink of becoming the number one state for new coronavirus infections per capita. Its COVID-19 test positivity rate already the highest in the country. In addition to ordering mask wearing for the next two weeks, the governor's also delaying the reopening of some schools in a number of counties. We must pump the brakes in hardest hit areas. The action seen as an acknowledgement Mississippi underestimated the virus. Now counties are struggling to stop infections just as schools start to reopen. In the capital of Jackson, the mayor says hospitals are overwhelmed and is ordering a five-day curfew starting tonight from midnight to 5 a.m. We saw that the numbers were increasing. Uh, we warned that, that we were opening up too soon. And so I think we're seeing the ill effects of that decision. Governor Reeves says he's anxious to get schools open again, arguing the long-term negative learning impact can be as harmful as the risks of the virus. He's also pushing for masks for another reason. I know that I want to see college football in the fall. Unlike some other Republican governors, Reeves seems to have evolved with virus science. Back in March, he was hesitant to lock down the state. Then, after he did, pulled back on reopening plans in early May after infections surged. In July, he admitted on Facebook Live to getting tested and tweeted a photo of his own daughter's mask mandate on her bedroom door. Now Reeves has made face mask wearing the law of Mississippi. Throughout this pandemic, we've tried to operate with humility, understanding that we cannot be too proud to change course. Even though the governor has delayed the reopening of some schools, most of the school districts in the state of Mississippi are moving forward. 51 districts reopened this week, an additional 49 will join them next week. Pamela? All right. Thank you so much, Martin. We appreciate it. And meantime, have you seen these images of this massive blast in Beirut? Take a look as we learn of a possible Russia connection to what caused the explosion. The latest up next. 
And our world lead dramatic drone video showing the unimaginable scope and scale of destruction from a massive explosion that tore through the heart of Beirut, Lebanon. Yesterday, more than 100 people are dead, thousands more injured or missing. Lebanon's president says the powerful blast was caused by thousands of tons of ammonium nitrate, which can be used to make explosives, and uh, that was were seized from a Russian ship six years ago and stored in a warehouse. Look at this, this incredible video. Captured this bride taking wedding photos, posing for them right as the explosion rocked the city. CNN is happy to report today that she and her husband are okay. And in this remarkable act of heroism, a nurse at a hospital damaged by the blast managed to save these three newborn babies, as you see in this picture. CNN senior international correspondent Ben Wiedemann is in Beirut, and CNN's Ryan Brown joins us from the Pentagon. So, Ben, a, a safe emergency has been declared in Beirut. What are you learning about the latest on the investigation? Well, what we know, for instance, uh, Pamela, is that the head of Beirut Customs had repeatedly requested uh, that this ammonium nitrate, 2,750 metric tons, be removed from the port. But apparently the head of the port, he told local television that he didn't quite realize it was that dangerous. Uh, we understand that port officials have been put under house arrest, uh, probably for mismanagement more than anything else at this point. The government did promise that the investigation would be swift and transparent, uh, but people I've spoken with here are skeptical, skeptical about that, uh, keeping in mind that over the last few decades there have been a series of high-profile assassinations, and none of the investigations, even international investigations, have really gotten to the bottom of them. So the expectation is that this time around, for this investigation, the result, or lack thereof, will be the same. Yeah, no surprise there, there's some skepticism there in Beirut. And Ryan, I want to turn to you because the president insisted last night that this was an attack. But right now, is there any proof to back that up? No, Pam, there's not. In fact, uh, despite citing his generals in that assessment that it was an, a bombing attack, uh, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper just a few hours ago saying that while they're still gathering information, most believe it to be an accident. And that, that's been backed up by several defense officials we've spoken to, sources here, who say there's nothing to indicate that this was an attack of any kind, despite President Trump's comments and his pointing to the military for that assessment. Now, Secretary Esper also said the U.S. government was positioning itself to render assistance if requested by the Lebanese government, things like potentially humanitarian and medical supplies. So we may be hearing some announcements about that in the coming days. But again, no signs whatsoever that despite the president's assertion that this was an attack, there appears to be no signs, at least from the military's assessment, that that was in fact the case. And no. the president hasn't followed up at all, correct? That's correct. We have not heard him uh, address this since those comments at that press conference yesterday. We have finally heard from the Department of Defense on the record saying that while they're still looking at it, it appears to have been an accident. Okay. Thank you so much, Ryan Brown. Ben Wiedemann, we appreciate it. And I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper today. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Have a great day. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.